I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Hello, Rise Together listeners. Dave here, along with... Noah Hollis! Oh my, that was very close to the mic. Welcome, Noah Hollis, to the show. Uh, Are you excited to be here? Yeah, I'm helping Daddy with his podcast. Wow. Uh, I love your lungs. I love these new glasses. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, you're I wa- love you too, Dad. Oh, I love you too. Uh, hey, we have a very special episode today. We have two of my favorite people of all time who, in... Who is it? It's Jay Shetty. Do you know Who's Jay? It? No. Who's oh, Jay Shetty? He's incredible. He is an author. He has a great podcast. He makes amazing content on the internet. And Mel Robbins. Do you know Mel? No, I don't know Mel. Oh, I wish you knew her because she's one of my favorite people also. Uh, she's an author and also I'm has an a... author too. You're an author too. You are an author. Wait a second. You're the author of a book. What's it called? Tea Time with Noah. It's a Tea Time with Noah book and it's called... Here's to you, James. We're having tea time with Noah. Here's to you, James. <laughs> there you go. It comes out on November 8th. I'm so excited. Number ninth, the dad. It's actually the 8th, but either way, it'll be amazing. Uh, Mel has a brand new podcast. It's called the Mel Robbins Podcast. And uh, I cannot encourage you enough to go check it out, subscribe. It is incredible. Uh, between now and then. Enjoy this conversation with Jay Shetty. Enjoy this conversation with Mel Robbins. I know that both will bless you today. And don't forget that Here's to Your Dreams comes out when? When does it come out? The night. It's still November 8th. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Rise Together. My name's Dave Hollis. I'm the host of this show where we're going to hopefully have you feeling a little more normal in this, the human experience. Maybe see yourself even in some of the stories that are told or have your appreciation of what it means to be human expanded by someone who's come on as a guest who's had a different life experience. In all of it, we are trying our best in community to learn from each other, to grow, and maybe even have a little bit more compassion for what it's like to walk in each other's shoes. When we do, we all rise together.
All right, one of my favorite people in the entire world, Jay, thank you for hanging out talking about courage today. One of the things in the conversations that we've had over my own journey that have been so, so helpful for me is the idea that we have to have the kind of courage that allows us to appreciate what got us here was good, valuable, important, but also not likely the thing that we will need to continue our journey. And that permission from you and your experiences for me to let go of the things that worked so that I can embrace the things that will was life-giving. One of the things that you had brought up was this story of the, of the Buddha. And I, it just it stuck with me so well. But we talk a little bit about the courage that is required to let go of what's worked so you can embrace what will and maybe incorporate that story. Yeah, Dave, thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful to be here and grateful to be a part of this new book, new stage, new chapter in your life. It's so exciting. And I think for me, as humans, we're so obsessed with holding on, holding on to things, holding on to places, holding on to people. And we take so much pride that if we've held on, then that's our success. That's what makes us feel like we're winning, is if you could hold on through all the turbulence and all the chaos, and we reward that in society. We reward time together, time at a company, time at an institution, when actually the greatest superpower may have been to let go and move on and unlearn and relearn and redefine your life, but we haven't really allowed space for that. So mentally, we are wired to want to hold on, even though our greatest benefit may come from letting go. What's it, one of the things that just came in the midst of that conversation is time spent, particularly against the backdrop of relationship, mm-hmm. right? We have a really hard time opening ourselves up to the possibility that someone who we have been in relationship with for a long period of time, who served us well at a certain point in our life, may not serve us as well any longer because of the way they think or the way that we are not able to have healthy boundaries with them. There's something in relationship and time spent that really has to be challenged to get to where you want to go. I can agree more. We measure everything by the clock. And the clock doesn't tell you anything apart from how many days, weeks, months, and years, but it doesn't tell you about the quality of those days. It doesn't tell you about the memories in those years. It doesn't tell you about the moments in those weeks or months. And so, and that's what we're made up of. We're made up of those moments and memories and relationships are defined by those. So the Buddha story that you mentioned is probably one of my favorite to tell. And the Buddha would tell this story and share this, especially with the message we're discussing And the stories of a person, just like you or me or anyone who's watching or listening right now, and we're all on a journey. And on this journey, we come across obstacles. And this person, the first obstacle they come across is a fast-flowing, gushing river. And it's so fast that they know that if they step foot in it, they're going to get carried away. So they realize they need to build some sort of vehicle or mode of transport to get to the other side. Initially, they think a log will suffice. So they push this log out, hoping to float on it. And in seconds, the log is completely taken away. So the person realizes they're going to have to build something a lot more robust and stronger. And so they find bamboo. They lay down the first set. Then they lay down another. They start crafting a raft. They find some rope and they tie up the corners this time. They know that they have to be careful. And they even build an oar because they know they're going to need it. So slowly this time they get on top 
They slowly get themselves out there and then start paddling fast, as fast as they can, as fast as they can, as fast as they can, with all their might. And finally, they get to the other side. And when the person gets to the other side, they look at this raft and they look at this oar and they think, this saved my life. Yeah. This raft, this raft changed my life. And without this, I can never, ever overcome anything else. Without this, I am helpless. This is my most important asset in the world. I'm going to strap it to my back and I'm going to take it with me wherever I go. So they're proudly marching on with the raft on their back. And, and have a ton of confidence because that was a thing that made them confident in some respects. Absolutely. And so, boy, they are now ready to take on whatever comes next. Absolutely. And, it, and it's part of their journey and it's part of their story. So they also have this nostalgia with it. Right. And I think nostalgia is such an interesting thing because it makes us make so many bad decisions. <laughs> I mean, we all know a song that you remember from high school that would make you want to do some really silly stuff today. <laughs> anyway, so they're walking down. And as any other person would, the Buddha says they come across their next challenge. Except for this time, it's not a fast flowing, gushing river. It's a tall wooded forest with trees dotted at every other step. And the person starts to walk through and then all of a sudden they're just getting stuck because the raft is just continuously hitting the trees and they're trying to just navigate and find a gap to go through. But the raft just keeps getting chipped and cut and then they stop and they fall to their knees. And the Buddha says that at this point, this person has a really important reflection. They realize that they have two choices. They can either continue to struggle through with the raft strapped to their back or they can put the raft down and walk through freely knowing that they can always pick up the raft again if they need to. They can build it up again if they need to but that this time they need new habits for a new time. Yeah. They need a new mindset for a new time. Yeah. And the person in that story the Buddha tells puts the raft down and walks through freely. So... I, I love that story yeah. because I think we all just cling on to tools, techniques, mindsets, methods that we believe got us here. And we're like, we're so naked. We feel naked if we let go of them. And that's people too. That's jobs. That's titles and identities. I had that title with the monk title. Yeah. When I lived as a monk, that was my identity. I was married to being a monk. And to leave that title at the time felt like the most difficult thing in the world because I no longer had another title to transition to. And so titles do it to us too. Anything like people, places, and possessions become our obsession. And then those obsessions make us hold on even when it's slowly, it's like a rope. If you hold on really tight to a rope, even if it's slowly being pulled out, it's going to burn you and hurt you. Oh, yeah. What's interesting, too, is I'm thinking about what you're saying. I can identify that there were things in my life at times that in a negative coping mechanism kind of way, I thought were helping me with the headwinds that I was experiencing only to realize that actually there was a different way. There was a better way to process the stress or to handle the frustration or, or weather the insecurity that comes in trying yeah. something new. And in like a habit loop kind of way, like replacing the routine changing the way that I might have previously reacted to a cue, same kind of thing, because I think the way that we do things that don't serve us can just as often become part of our identity as well until we're shown or, or, or brought to something that makes us see that there's a, a different or a better way to do it. Yeah, definitely. And I think you, you know, what you just said is so spot on. We don't 
we want to go on our first date. Most couples want to go back to their first date, the place they met, and relive that every year. And we put that on such a pedestal that we think it will never get better than this. Imagine you're setting yourself up for the rest of your life to say you will never have a better date or a better place than that. Yeah. And we do that with everything. We just make ourselves believe that what we've already experienced was already amazing and that we need to try and have the same experience. We go back to the same restaurants. We eat the same foods. We order the same drinks. We want to do the same thing again and again and again and try and get as much more pleasure as we possibly can rather than recognize that there might be something new yeah. that might be slightly uncomfortable, it might be slightly awkward, it may not even fit, it may even go wrong, but that we don't believe that there are higher sources of joy, happiness, experiences that are out there because we still want to relive the same experience again and again and again. And so, yeah. you know, and I think we've both been there in so many different areas of our life. And I've just understood that there's always a deeper stronger, more beautiful experience waiting for you if you're willing to let go of the current experience. Yeah. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I think of you as someone who is super intentional in their practices. You are doing something in your routine or in your, in just the way that you go through your day that is intending to unlock a specific way that you hope to feel the day, the way that you hope to be present or the way that you'd hope that that presence has an, an impact on the people inside your life. Yeah. What are some of the things that you do that manufacture the kind of courage that you'd need to handle whatever it is that ends up showing up in your day? So one of the things I've been doing recently, this is actually just this year, is I've been identifying things that I do find uncomfortable or that my mind automatically rejects. A few examples are skydiving. Yeah. <laughs> Another one is cold plunges. I had so many cold showers as a monk that when I left being a monk, I said, I'm never having a cold <laughs> bath or shower ever again. And so that had been a long time. And these obviously sound like quite extreme and things that are out there and things that people may think, even I did. I was like, well, what does that prove? Who cares? And I realized it wasn't about proving anything. It wasn't even that skydiving was the best experience of my life from an external point of view. It was amazing. But it was the idea of what I had to do to understand my mind in something that I could measure and do tangibly. So often a lot of life's challenges, they span across years. Yeah. And so you're making a tiny decision or iteration every day for years. Whereas when you decide to go skydiving, you now no longer have years to decide. Well, you might, but you shouldn't. 
And I decided 24 hours before that I was going to do it. And so I sat and I watched on YouTube every video of someone skydiving in Dubai, which was the place I went skydiving. So I saw the plane go up. I was watching the videos, watching the people's reactions. I saw them look out the window and they'd put the camera outside the window. And I immediately felt sick just watching the video. <laughs> and what I did is I took that and I looked at people jumping out. I then sat with my eyes closed and I visualized myself strapping on, getting in the plane, going up, looking outside the window, just all in my head, getting to the top. And I felt sick again. And I literally visualized that over and over again, what life would be like when I jump out of a plane. And something incredible happened. By the seventh time, I no longer felt sick. And then 24 hours later, when I was actually on the plane, and everyone else on the plane was looking out, feeling sick, feeling uncomfortable, I felt like I'd been there before. You'd normalized it. I'd normalized it. Yeah. And then when I jumped out, and the coaches there were incredible too, when I jumped out, no fear. Why? Because I'd already lived through the fear and the experience and neutralized the pain that my mind assigned to that experience. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to do that for everything, but I think often what we do, see, the first thing is we all visualize, but we all visualize what's going to go wrong. The worst case scenario. So we, vis we visualize <laughs> it in our heads. Plane's going to fall apart. My parachute's not going to work. Those are the things we're already visualizing. But why not visualize following the process, feeling in your body, seeing how your mind and your gut react to that. And if you can move through that, even visualizing a breakup, visualizing leaving your job, and you're not visualizing the ideal either. That's the other mistake. We either demonize or idolize things, and the answer is to neutralize it. Just experience it for what it is. The re yeah, the real of the real. Yeah. I have been so encouraged by the way your influence has continued to grow over time, and I'm, man, I feel like you're just at the beginning of what ends up being a lifetime of service and, and changing this world. But I am wondering where along the way as you continue to have bigger stages or platform, were you confronted with things that made you have to cultivate courage because of the natural human fears that just exist for any and every one of us as we take steps closer to actualizing who we're here to be? I think every day. Yeah. It's just what fear you use. Like for me... I think it's about getting to what are you genuinely afraid of and the root of that fear. I think too many of us are working through a fear that's actually a superficial or a symptom fear and not a root fear. And I realize if I really look to my root fear, my root fear would be I've been given so much responsibility. I've been given so much fortune and blessings. I've been given so many incredible teachers and mentors and coaches and people that I've learned from. And my biggest fear is not serving them effectively. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that fear. I love that fear. I want to embrace that fear because that makes me feel really happy that that's my actual fear. And all of a sudden that fear doesn't scare me. It makes me happy that I'm trying to live for something beyond myself. Yeah. And so I work to try and remind myself that that's actually what I'm scared of. Let me not be scared of, oh, I've been invited to do this cool thing and now I'm scared of imposter syndrome or I'm scared that I don't deserve to be there. Those fears are not going to make me serve better. Those fears are actually going to make me become someone I don't want to be. Yeah. But if I keep reminding myself that when I'm scared of going somewhere or meeting someone, that actually 
the fear I should be motivated by is I want to serve better, then automatically that fear turns into love. And now it's no longer fear of letting people down. It's love for the people that have been lifting me up. And so for me, I'm always trying to remind myself, don't let that symptom fear, don't let that fear right now take you away from what you really care about. So important. I mean, like the conceit of this book in so many ways is this idea that you were put here intentionally with purpose and that our work on the planet is to honor the intention of that creator. You certainly have. When someone starts to feel the feelings, the intuition, the gut that says, listen to me, (laughs) follow the signs of life that might allow the thing that lives inside of me to come and actually afford the light to others or tap into my passion or exploit my gifts, we tend to kind of push it back in part Mm -hmm. because of those calls usually taking us outside of something that is comfortable. As someone who has embraced going into uncomfortable spaces, the experience that you had as a monk, transformational, but also uncomfortable, the work that you do today, at times uncomfortable, but ultimately affording others transformation. What advice would you give to someone who hears that knowing They know they need to do something with it, but are ultimately afraid to trust that instinct or are are still at this point unwilling to fully step toward how they might unlock those gifts inside. Yeah, the, the inner voice only gets louder when you follow it. And it's always this quiet voice, and that's why we're not sure if it's true. But because we haven't followed it before, it's so quiet, almost silent. And if you follow it, get stronger and louder and bigger and then you can't hear anything else that's that's all you can hear and I think the difficulty is we feel it has to be this big transition and often I think in personal growth or self-development it can feel like a big transition and it is but that big transition happened over a number of years I'd say from the moment that I started working on myself and trying to do the inner work to the point that people even connected with my work was 10 years. It was 18 to 28. So it was already 10 years of work before anyone was even aware. And it feels like everything's overnight or it feels like it's very quick. So I'd say my biggest piece of advice is just walk a step closer to that voice. Just walk one step closer to that voice. If that voice is telling you to experiment with something, just book a weekend and go on that course. Or go on that night for that evening coaching program or go and join that online thing, whatever it is, like just go and do that first step. You don't have to decide. You don't have to quit your job. You don't have to become something tomorrow. You just have to take that first step. And the other thing I'd say, which I think is often missed, is if you really want to turn it into something, please get strategic. Mm. Uh, I talk about sincerity and strategy as the most collaborative qualities we can have. And sincerity without strategy doesn't work. And strategy without sincerity doesn't make you happy. And so I really feel that if you're sincere and if you're listening to Dave and if you're reading his book and if you're in his community, you already are sincere. I already know that. And the only thing you need to add is the strategy part, which is who are my coaches? Who are my mentors? How am I going to make this real? Who's going to keep me accountable and consistent? If you don't commit to something, it's really difficult for it to take off. So I'd say balance those two skills and energies. Yeah. Well, we find ourselves in real time sitting in a circle of people who are pouring into us as much as we might be afforded an opportunity to pour into them. 
this group of people for me in this journey has been life-giving and changed the way that I was able to work through grief and paint a more vivid picture with my imagination of what ends up happening next when my life ends up changing. You among the most complicit in helping me along this journey. I appreciate it. For anyone who has an ambition, though, to take these steps closer to who they'd hope to become, coming back a little bit to the beginning of our conversation and the things that worked and the things that might be necessary that are different to work in the future, the circle that you surround yourself ends up being just such an important thing. And I've described the the crabs in a bucket analogy. If you are with a, a bunch of people that are like the crabs who might pull the crab who tries to get out of the bucket back down into the bucket, you're, of course, never going to grow. And what you want is a group that might be pushing you out of your current station and closer to the calling that you have. We talk a little bit about how circles in your life or circles generally are such an important part of how you find the signs of life that might have you walking towards something new more Mm -hmm. confidently and why who you surround yourself ends up being such an important factor in everything. Yeah, definitely. Um, you have to be around people who cheer you on, but then also challenge you. Yeah. And I think often we choose either or. So if you only have people that challenge you around you, you might actually have low self-esteem. You may feel envious. You may feel unaccomplished. You actually may have quite a lot of negative, unhealthy emotions because you constantly feel like you're not enough. But if you only have people that cheer you on, You get complacent, you get lazy, you feel like you're at the top of a mountain that doesn't exist. And so I find that I need constantly people. I was was sharing with the group, I think yesterday, that recently I've been working with some incredible people. And I called up my monk teacher, who I still stay connected with. He's 70 years old and has more wisdom than anyone I know and more life experience and has lived through it and... I called him up and I was sharing him. He always asked me, what are you up to? And I was sharing with him what I'm doing. And he said, you're so lucky that you get to work with these people. That you're so lucky. He said, you're so lucky because you get to help them with your problems. And that for me is that kind of positive challenge and reminder of where you truly are. Now, I know when he says that, it's full of love. But it is also a really strong reminder of, hey, Jay, don't forget, you've got a lot of work to do. You've got lots of things there that you need to develop and get better at. And so I've loved having that. And then at the same time, I know I can talk to him and he'll just be showering me with, with God's love and just saying how, how happy he is with what I'm trying to do and how I'm trying to serve the world. And so I think you need both because, and, and I always know that he's the one who knows exactly what I need. Yeah. In any conversation, I know that he'll know. But even, yeah, our group that we have here, it's, you know, the fact... I have to give you credit. Like we sat down last year when I was launching my first book, you were launching your first book and you sat down with me and you shared so many great insights as to how I could help my community understand my book better. And because of you, we created so many beautiful attachments and extensions of the book that help people have this unique experience with the book. And I wouldn't have had that if I didn't meet you. And then we became friends and got to know each other and hung out and then, you know, I just feel like friendship, after all of this, I said this to someone the other day, someone was saying to me, they said, they were asking me how much I value awards and winning and success. And I said, I love it. I, I'm not going to lie. I love it. I think it's great to win. I think it's wonderful to have awards and be recognized for our service because we're not accepting the award. We're accepting the award on behalf of 
all of our teachers and coaches right. and mentors and everyone who served before us who had an impact. But at the same time, I said, the thing I look back on the most is that I know that if everything changed, there are a small group of people that actually know my heart. Yeah. And that's what I hold on to because everyone's opinions will shift and change and alter, but I have a small group of people that have actually spent time with me and they know my heart. Yeah. And those are the people that I'll look to, whether things are good, bad, or whatever they may be. I was saying to one of the people in our crew last night that in the midst of the hardest season of my life, the first 10 conversations I had, eight of them happened to be with people that were inside of the room. And if there's anything in my, well, number one, I know for sure 100% that I have not been through the last of my hard seasons. I haven't Mm -hmm. had the last of heartbreak or grief or any of those things. It's a question of when and not if something else hard is going to come. But this most recent hard experience and the way that community surrounded me and tools were handed to me and support was extended when I needed it and often in the way that I didn't know I needed it, it was extended. I now have evidence of how much support I'll have and how... Now I know, oh, I can handle whatever ends up coming next because of the way I was blessed with this community to help me get through something that I didn't expect, wouldn't have wanted. But because of being able to get through it, I know I can get through whatever ends up being next. For the person, final question, for the person who is wanting to access their courage but is having trouble accessing it, what do you what what single piece of advice do you give for someone who says, "Man, I want to be brave. I want to do more. I want to make a move, and I just don't know how to create the kind of courage that would be necessary for me to do it in the face of my fears?" I'd probably say, "Don't try and create a leap. Build a bridge." And I feel like we're always thinking that we have to take this big leap, this big lunge, this big jump. And actually, you just have to build the bridge. I mean, we're all walking on bridges. None of us have got there. None of us have made it. None of us are on the other side. And often we make it seem like, oh, once you leap, you're on the other side. And then you're like, well, wait a minute, is that the other side again? Then, <laughs> and which way? So I just feel like build a bridge, like change your mindset about how you think about courage. Courage isn't a leap. Courage isn't a jump. Courage is a bridge, and that bridge has many facets. It has many steps. It has many handrails to make sure you feel safe. Uh, It has a beautiful arc. It has nuts and bolts that keep it together. And so if every day you're just putting in a new step, putting in a new part of the handrail, that's what it takes. And so stop making courage feel like this big, overwhelming thing that feels like you're really powerful and brave as opposed to just being really smart and methodical. And I look at the courage to become a monk actually felt easier than the courage to leave Mm. because leaving an identity is harder than finding one. And so leaving an identity, leaving a path, leaving a marriage, leaving a relationship is so much harder than finding one. And what I realized was that I had to allow myself the space to invite the mystery. And when you allow yourself space and grace to allow for mystery and experimentation, rather than just finding the next thing to hold on to, and that's courage. Courage is giving yourself space for mystery and experimentation, 
not for rushing into the next thing you can find really, really quickly. Yeah. And I hope that helps people. There are no, you know, I'm sure, I mean, Built Through Courage is, is written for that. So that's going to have the formula. Uh, but in the time we have together, I've, I've not felt it's been a formula. I've felt it's constantly been allowing myself space and grace for, for mystery and experimentation. So good. Yeah. I love you, brother. Thank, Thank you, you for Thank being you so a part of how I cultivate the courage that I need to do the work that I know I am placed on this planet to be. I appreciate you in so many ways, and I'm excited for everything that's going to come next in your world as well. Dave, I'm so excited for people to read your book. I hope that everyone gets it. I hope everyone gets two and gives it to a friend <laughs> as well, because I think courage is really what so many of us are missing right now in so many ways. And the courage to believe it's not too late the courage to believe you have a purpose, the courage to believe that not everyone's opinions are true about you, the courage to believe that you do have a service in this world that is uniquely yours. Yeah. I'm so glad that you're the one reminding people of that. Mel Robbins. Hello. Oh, my goodness. One of my favorite humans on the planet. I'm so glad that you're here. So in this conversation that we are having around cultivating courage, one of the hardest things that I think plagues each of us as human beings is the courage to challenge the voice in our head. Yeah. Do you have any experience with this? (laughs) Experience with it? Yes. Um, Yeah. So... So here, here's the thing I want to say, Dave, is that recently I have realized, and this is not an easy thing to admit, but it's an honest thing to admit, that I have spent probably the last 40 years of my life either criticizing the woman I saw in the mirror or maybe even worse, ignoring her. Ooh. And I think that it is so ingrained in all of us. And, you know, I have a theory about this that, that, it's the drive to fit in and the need to like find a table of kids to sit with in the lunchroom, the need to fit in with the cool kids or the sports kids or to feel safe in a group that activates this negative self-talk. Like to me, there are two ways that, that it comes into our life. Either your parents are critical of you or your caregivers are critical of themselves and you start to absorb that as your own mm. default way of talking to yourself Or you have an experience as a kid where you suddenly feel like there's something wrong with you. You don't belong at that table. You didn't make this team. And so to protect yourself from that hurt, you start to beat yourself up. And what's screwed up about it is I think it begins as a way to keep yourself safe. Yeah. Or it begins as an unconscious way. And so I never realized, Dave, just how ruthless I was with myself. Yeah. What's interesting, I think about for myself, when I think about my greatest fears, I forever and ever said that my greatest fear was not living up to my potential. It is a big fear. But the number one fear, and this came through therapy over the last 18 months, my number one fear is being myself and not being loved as myself. And that fear ends up acting as a catalyst for most of the negative self-talk that says, You're not going to be enough if you act like yourself. If you present as your true, authentic, this is me self, you will not be accepted. You'll be rejected. 
And those voices connected to that want for being seen as me and being enough is just so, it's just such a brutal thing that requires, again, like, where does that voice come and why does it exist? Well, see, I think that there's a fundamental flaw in human design. So there's so many things that are exquisite and amazing about the way we human beings are designed. I mean, it's just extraordinary when you stop to think about the way that your brain works or your body works or the things that you can do. But I think the fundamental flaw in human design is this. When something happens to you as a kid, whether you experience abuse or rejection or disappointment or you're not given the love or you get abandonment, instead of going, boy, these people around me are screwed up. Or, hey, if that person's being abusive to me, probably happened to them. As a kid, you do not have the life experience or the support system to process it and go, they're screwed up. Right. What happens for every human being is when something bad happens to you when you're little, you go, there must be something wrong with me. Yeah. There is this break in belonging, not only with people around you, but with yourself. And that's where it begins. There's something wrong with me. What's crazy, too, is if you think about then the programming that we are growing up inside of, whether it's family of origin or societally, what good girls do or real men are meant to be, as you start to deviate potentially from any of that programming, there's plenty of forces that reinforce get back in your lane. Well, you know what? I got a quick story to tell you. Yeah. And this does not make me proud. So this is one of these Mel's a crappy mom stories. So when our son Oakley was uh, in the seventh grade, he was going to a new school and he's a huge fan of Ninja. And so he had dyed the ends of his hair blue, right? And so as he's leaning into this new school, I start to get worried, even though I love his blue hair, that the kid is screwed if he goes to a new school with blue hair. First of all, he's not a sports kid. Secondly, he's got dyslexia. Third, he's like a theater kid. Fourth, he's a really sensitive guy who likes to jump on his train. He's like the greatest kid ever. And he's got blue hair. Okay. So as his mother, Dave, I start to go, even though I like his blue hair, you know, Oak, you might want to cut your hair before you go to that school. You know, Oak, you might want to get those tips off your hair. And then his older sisters pile on. You know, Oak, it's not like you're a star lacrosse player. I'm not sure I'd go waltzing into your new school with blue hair. You don't want to be the kid with blue hair. So he acquiesces. He cut his hair off, not because he wanted to, but because we gave him the message, you are not okay as you are. Yeah. What's interesting too is if you think about it, your message was presented as love. Yes. But what it was, was fear wrapped in love, right? The wrapping paper around your fear was love and you handed him your fear. Yeah, and here's the other sad piece of it. Not only were were we saying, it's not okay to be you. We'd rather you be someone else. There's a deeper thing, too, that I think is really sad. And that is, we all start to learn in our life that love is transactional. Ugh. If you do this, then I'll then, like you. Yeah, yeah. I'll like you more without your blue hair. I'll stop harping on you if you do this thing. That somehow acquiescing to what other people want is the avenue for being liked and for being loved. And I hate telling that story because I know it's probably going to result in three years of therapy for the kid where he talks about my anger issues and controlling nature. But it's also, I think, a really relatable example of just how prominent 
that message is yeah. that there's something wrong with you. And if you do what I say, check these then boxes, like you. then you'll be enough. Then you'll be lovable. Then yeah. you'll be accepted. And that it ends up being, I think, the, again, the catalyst for why so much of this negative self-talk and confidence issues exist. How do you combat it? Okay. So I wish I knew this earlier because I only discovered this at the age of 52. I'm not kidding. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you a quick story. Um, I walked into my bathroom about a year ago. I was in my underwear, brushing my teeth. And I look in the mirror and I immediately have this reaction. Ugh. <laughs> you know, I, I like notice the jowls are starting to look like saddlebags on a pack mule going into the Grand Canyon. I see the stripes on my neck. One boob is hanging lower than the other one. I'm looking at my saggy stomach, the gray hairs coming in. And as I'm criticizing myself, which I do out of habit, I've been doing it for 40 years. Then my mind goes to, oh my gosh, I didn't text Dave back. I forgot to do that presentation. My first Zoom call is in 10 minutes. The dog needs to be walked. He's sitting there at my feet. And now my attitude is going down. Yeah. Right? And I don't know why, but I found myself going mentally low and as corny as it sounds, Dave, I found myself raising my hand and high-fiving my reflection in the mirror. Super weird, okay? But for whatever reason, I just instinctively did it. I went on with my day. The next morning I woke up and here was the crazy thing. As I mentioned in the beginning of this talk, that I think I've spent 40 years either criticizing or ignoring myself. Yeah. As I walked into the bathroom on the second morning, I had this weird feeling that I was about to see someone, namely myself. That there was this moment of intentionally being present with myself that that little high five created as part of my morning routine that I already started to feel like, wait a minute, there's a person in that mirror that needs to be seen, that needs to be celebrated. And so I high five myself again. Now, as I started doing this, I started to wonder, okay, this is kind of weird because I'm really into things that sound super stupid, but have a lot of research <laughs> behind work. it. Yes. Well, here's why a high five works. And I'm just going to hit you with one piece of research that, that everybody on the planet can understand like this. For your entire life, you've been high-fiving other people. So what does a high five represent when you give it to someone else or they give it to you? Wow. Good job. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. I'm proud of you. Yeah, I see you. It yeah. also can be like, if you're about to do the biggest play of your life, you got this. I believe in you. Yeah. If your attitude tanks, I'm going to take my belief and transfer yeah. it to you. It is impossible, Dave, to be with yourself in the mirror and raise your hand and high five yourself and actually think something negative. Your brain won't <sighs> allow it. And the reason why is you have a lifetime of positive association around belief, support, and celebration stored right here with this gesture. The moment you raise your hand with your own reflection, this subconscious part of your brain takes over. It overrides and silences the critic, and it marries celebration, support, empowerment, and belief with your own reflection. It's like smell or music might bring you back to a memory from childhood. It's the same kind it's of thing. It's the same oh. Thing. And then when I dug into it even deeper, study after study after study proves that support, empowerment, celebration is the most empowering motivational force on the planet. And here we've been doing the opposite. Like we gladly cheer for our best friends. We, we, we 
cheer for our favorite sports teams. We download people's music. We plan birthday parties. We take on work from colleagues who are overwhelmed. We have no clue how to do those things for ourselves. Right. I bet we even extend grace at a way higher degree to yes. people that aren't ourselves than we do ourselves. And that yes. high five, I can see it as as much a celebration it is, as it might be an invitation for a little bit of grace. Yes, totally. And so it's like this little habit you can do in the morning that creates a moment of presence with yourself, a moment to create an intention for the day, a moment. And, you know, like courage, yes, over time, it's going to take courage to raise the hand. And this is the weird part. Uh, you know, people watching this are going to just dismiss this as something stupid, and not even try it. Or they're going to stand in front of the mirror and you're going to feel this resistance. This is where the courage comes in. The resistance is actually very sad. The resistance that you feel and the courage that's going to be required is because you've convinced yourself that you're not worthy of love and celebration unless you've done something that's worthy Ooh. of love and celebration. Ooh, that's good. And so when you stand there and you have the courage to raise your hand and high five your reflection just for being there, it is an act of defiance against the shame and the regret and the self-loathing that you feel. Let's go. Absolutely. I mean, this is revolutionary in the simplest single thing you could do. Correct. Oh, man, I love it. Me too. Me too. Because in the beginning, it's something you do. And over time, it becomes a part of who you are. This ability to celebrate, support, and cheer for yourself no matter what, because that's exactly what you need as a human being. And you've been looking outside yourself for that validation and support and love. And I'm here to tell you, it requires courage to look inside and start providing it for yourself. All right. So tell me about the high five challenge. So the high five challenge is very simple. I want you to wake up five mornings in a row and begin your day with a high five in the mirror. And to make it super easy, I've partnered with Growth Day. It's the app that our friend Brenda Bruchard started. Get, I am in it. You're in it. I'm in it. We're both coaches for it. You get free access for five days when you go to the High Five Challenge. There, I know you're going to provide a link to everybody somewhere. You'll figure that out. Yep. But just High Five Challenge, you get support, you get access to the app. It's totally free. And it is the fastest way to reconnect with yourself and start improving the relationship you have with yourself and practicing courage, as Dave is asking us all to do. How do you cultivate courage in your life to face the things that you fear the most? Oh, well, I use the five-second rule. So the five-second rule, that little brain hack I use, whenever I'm scared, anxious, afraid, procrastinating, whatever, it's always just fear. I count backwards, five, four, three, two, one, and I push myself to do the thing I'm scared to do. Ah, so good. When you think about courage and your responsibility as a parent for modeling it to your children... Is there something that's in your toolbox you can point to as a game changer for helping them become brave? Um, well, the first thing that came to mind was giving them permission to call me out on my stuff mm. and actually listening to it. And um, the thing that my kids call me out on the most is my tone of voice. And so watching my kids say, mom, watch your tone. Mom, you can be angry. Don't spread it on me. Mom, if you want to have a conversation, I want you to not be so agitated. It has helped me 
be a better communicator. It's helped me uh, catch that sort of automatic edge that I can have. And I think it's given them courage to call people out, to express boundaries, to say things that they know somebody is going to react negatively to. So good. Yeah, but that's that I think is something that has really help them find the courage to just speak up and not tolerate BS, even if it's from their mother. I love it. <laughs> All right, last question. The book in its broadest conceit is this idea that we were each uniquely created with intentional design from a creator who knew mm-hmm. what he was doing when he put us here. Mm-hmm. And the work we have to do every day is to honor that intention. Yes. So as you think about the reason why you're here, mm-hmm. what are you doing every day with courage, to honor the intention of your creator? Wow. That's a big question. It is a big question. The answer is, I don't think I am. Like, what your question's making me realize is, I don't think I am waking up with the level of intention that I should and taking that responsibility seriously. Mm. I think I uh, have periods of my life where my actions are aligned with the deepest calling in my heart. And then there are periods in my life where I am lost at sea, to use your metaphor, and spinning around. And I have found that you do have to get a little lost before you find yourself again. And so I think that um, I don't do it every day, but I find my way back whenever I get quiet and less busy and I can hear myself again. I love it. Well, thank you for listening to another episode. I appreciate you all being here so, so much. Before you go, I just want to make mention of one thing that I am so excited about. My daughter Noah and I have put together a delightful, an amazing, a wonderful children's picture book. It's based on the fun video series that we've done online called Tea Time with Noah. And it's called Here's to Your Dreams. It, uh, it comes out on November 8th. And it's a book that hopefully encourages children to be brave, to believe in themselves, to dream big. Uh, in this, our first adventure, Noah has this big dream of becoming a sea captain. She realizes in pursuing this dream that it's not all smooth sailing. She doesn't know how to captain, doesn't have a ship, doesn't know how to build one. And that process of having to learn and try and fail and get back up teaches her that she has so much of what she's always needed already inside of her. And that every time it didn't go her way, it equipped her with some skills that allowed her to be even stronger and more resilient and believe more in herself on the other side. Again, it's called Here's to Your Dreams. It comes out on November 8th, and you can get it anywhere books are sold. For more info, head to the link in the show notes or to here's to your dreams.com.